0: So I'm just going to do it clumsily. This might be considered a continuation of our series on covenants. But for the next several weeks, we're going to focus on this present covenant, the new covenant. Detailing the rights, the responsibilities, all the things that pertain to us in this dispensation. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33 says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Today we are in the fulfillment of this this promise, this prophecy. Today we are enjoying this new covenant. It is the fulfillment and the realization of all previous covenants. And it is more potent. It is more complete. Under this covenant we have the fullest revelation of who God is. Of anybody. Of anybody in history. We have the most potent and, and available promises. Available to us. This new covenant was mediated by Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of the new covenant. The blood of the new covenant, of course, is the blood spilt on Calvary by Jesus Christ himself. The seal of this new covenant is water baptism. And the words of this new covenant, well, that's what we're going to be going into over the next several weeks. Now to properly understand this new covenant, we're in a, we're looking at a period of time right now in the gospels. We're going to be looking at Matthew specifically. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. This is where we, we find the fullest expression of this new covenant. And during this time period, it's a very interesting time period. Uh, up until the time of Jesus, actually up until the time of uh John the Baptist, they were experiencing a, a period of 400 years of silence. <clears throat> they had not had a prophet. They had not had a word from the Lord. They had not seen a vision. Nothing. They had God's word. That was it. That's all they had. For the first time since Moses brought them out of the land of Egypt, They had not had a visitation in 400 years. No profit, nothing. A lot of interesting things happened during this time period. But when Jesus came on the scene, he had to get his people ready for a transition. He was transitioning from the old covenant to a new. From the old to a better. And so, in the Gospels, we find various aspects of that, that transitioning period. Uh, in the book of Matthew, Matthew was written between A.D. A- 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 mm-hmm, 60 and 70. In this, he's presented as the son of David, the king of the Jews. And everything in Matthew's narrative kind of revolves around this, that he is the king of the Jews, that he is the Messiah, that he is the, the prophesied one that was to come. He's the one that's going to sit on the throne of David. In this gospel, we find Christ's royal genealogy. He's traced back to Abraham and to David. The journey of the wise men, we find this account. They're seeking the king of the Jews. And, of course, in the book of Matthew, we find the Sermon on the Mount which is in reality the Manifesto of the King. It contains an enunciation of the laws of his kingdom. And again, that's what we'll be focusing on for the remainder of this study. But in the book of Matthew, he presents Christ in an official relationship, namely as Messiah and King of Israel. Matthew, he filled an official position in the Roman government. He was a tax collector. And as a tax tax collector... He enjoyed the love and the adoration of the Jews. They adored him. (laughs) Not really. No, he was probably qualified as anybody to relate to us how that Jesus was hated without a cause and despised and rejected by his own nation. He understood this, at least in type. Mark, the book of Mark was written around A.D. 60. In this, he's depicted, Jesus Christ is depicted as the servant of Jehovah, the one though God himself, he became a servant and made himself of no reputation. In this gospel, we find absolutely no genealogy. Christ is introduced to us at the beginning of his public ministry, and there's no mention of his life before that. In the book of Mark, we find more miracles, more acts of service, more ministry taking place than in any other gospel. Now, Mark was not an apostle, but he was a servant of one. He was therefore perhaps qualified to write about Jesus Christ as a servant. The book of Luke was written at about the same time as the gospel of Matthew, 80, 60 to 70. In this, Christ is set forth as the Son of Man as connected with but contrasted from the sons of men. Now, Luke it takes, a <coughs> excuse me, takes a little bit different slant on this. His genealogy is traced all the way back to Adam, not just to Abraham. Jesus is seen frequently in prayer. Angels are seen ministering to Jesus instead of being commanded by him as they are in the book of Matthew. Now, Luke was a physician. And it's possible that he wasn't a Jew at all, but actually a Gentile. If that's true, he would have been uniquely qualified as a physician to narrate to us the virgin birth. To reveal unto us completely, most completely, the fallen and depraved state of human nature, being a Gentile. His gospel is more international in scope, referring to Jesus as the Son of Man and not the Son of David. Again, being traced all the way back to Adam, and not to Abraham. He's presented as the Savior of all mankind, as relating to the entire world, and not just the Jewish nation. In the book of John, this one is unique from the previous three. The other three are are generally known as the Synoptic Gospels. This gospel was written between 80, 90, and 100, much later than the other gospels. In this gospel, Christ is revealed as the Son of God. And everything in this fourth gospel is made to illustrate and demonstrate this divine relationship. In John's gospel, we find uh, in the opening verse, it carries us all the way back before time and reveals to us Jesus as the word that was in the beginning and that he is indeed God. We get his divine titles such as the only begotten of the Father, the Lamb of God, the Light of the world. <clears throat> Those are found in the book of John. We're told in the book of John that prayer should be made in his name. We're told here that the Holy Ghost is sent by him, by Jesus Christ. John was a man gifted with unusual spiritual discernment. He had perhaps the most intimate relationship with Jesus of all the disciples. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He saw and presented to us the spiritual connection, namely that Jesus was God. Okay, so these are, this is a brief overview of the Gospels in general. If we do a little bit deeper dive into the book of Matthew, again, Matthew's Gospel breaks 400 years of silence. No angelic visitations, no prophets spake for Jehovah, no divine help on the behalf of Israel. All they had was God's Word. Now, they got to this place because from the time of the Exodus up until the time of the uh, carrying away into Babylon, into Assyria, they struggled with idolatry. They struggled with faithlessness to God. And... <laughs> The book of Judges is, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a byword now. It's, you know, the, the roller coaster of serving God, not serving God, repenting, coming back to God, losing out with God, judgment, coming back to God, repentance. You know, it's, it's just a, a vicious cycle. And, uh, it's one we're not exempt from. If we look back at our own lives, we can probably see a very similar pattern. But from the time of the Exodus all the way till the time that uh, they were taken out of Israel, the promised land, they struggled with this. And then after a period of time, they were allowed to come back. A remnant came back. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel. And they were cured. They were cured of idolatry. They never struggled with it again. It only took that. Of course, they ended up struggling with other things afterward. But so at this point, they kind of, they kind of almost went to the other side of the road, the other ditch. Instead of struggling with idolatry, they struggled with legalism. In any case, this is where the the Gospels find us. The book of Matthew is the first book that we read about in what we call in the Bible the New Testament. It's not really the New Testament until the book of Acts, really. But... Uh, we do call the Gospels the New Testament. It's a connecting link between the Testaments. And Matthew shows the Messiah appealing to and dealing with his Old Testament people. We see Jesus all the time reaching out to his people. Matthew's Gospel is a dispensational Gospel. It shows us Christ offered to the Jews and the consequences of their rejection of him. God actually set Israel aside for a period of time and called him out a people of the Gentiles. No longer would he he deal with the Israelites per se as a race, as his people. But he would have a people separated unto himself, called out to himself, a spiritual Jew. In this present dispensation, the church supersedes the Jewish nation. The church is now the people of God. The church is the organism through which Jesus Christ is going to represent himself to the rest of the world. That's you and me. We represent Jesus to this world. It supplies the key to God's dealings with the earth in this age. And without it, without the book of Matthew and the other gospels, It would be difficult to understand the rest of the New Testament. Without this connection between the Old and the New, it would become extremely difficult to really comprehend either one. The Sermon on the Mount was delivered on a mountain. Most believe it to be Mount Eremos, also known as the Mount of Beatitudes. It's symbolic of Christ ascending to his throne, allowing him to teach from a position of authority. The Sermon on the Mount sets forth the Manifesto of the King. It contains the constitution, if you will, of his kingdom. It defines the character of those who would enter into it. It tells the experiences through which they pass while being fitted for that kingdom. And it enunciates the laws which are to govern their conduct. The authority of the king is evidenced by his saying, I say unto you, repeated no less than 14 times in this sermon. We're going to mention later that his authority is also demonstrated because at the end of the sermon, at the end of chapter 7 of Matthew, we read that the people marveled. They were amazed because he spoke with one as having authority and not as the scribes. There was a reason for that. When the scribes taught... They taught what God said. They would read a scripture, God saith, thus saith the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And that's all you and I can do. But Jesus, he said, I say unto you. He didn't say this is what God is saying. He said, this is what I'm saying. Because he is God. He is the king. And so he was able to speak with that kind of authority. And it was it was manifest in his message. It was manifest in the ears of the people that were there that day. That he spoke with that kind of authority. Not just the authority of a man, but with the authority of God. Very much like Moses receiving the law in Mount Sinai, God is giving his kingdom laws to us. The accounts are very similar. Man ascending Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. The people ascending Mount Eremos to receive the law from God. It was issued from God and it was received by man. Once again, like all covenants, God writes them, God issues them, and we receive them or reject them as is. God here was instituting a new covenant between God and man. This sermon emphasizes the internal qualities of living for God, while the Pharisees were only interested in the external. Again, like we read in Jeremiah, it, he points to a time when His laws will be internalized and spiritual in nature. This is why this coven, one reason why this covenant is so powerful. We can internalize the law. And that, does, that doesn't that does just mean we're memorizing Scripture, although we ought to. We need to. But what that means is we have the ability to obey. The law is in here. It's not being enforced externally anymore. And so when God writes His laws in my heart, He's giving me, it's, it's coming from inside of me now. A desire to please God. A desire to submit to the laws of God. To do those things that are right and good in His sight. That's what that means. They're in here and it's coming from there. It's coming from my heart. It's coming. The desire to live for God is coming from within. It points to a time when we'll be given the power to live righteously. And that is so huge. Because we're gonna see that these laws, this, this manifesto that he's presenting to us is much higher in nature. The standards are much higher. In fact, the standards are perfection. We can't do that by ourselves. The external nature of the Old Covenant was a failure. They didn't have to worry about, well, they still needed to, but the law proper didn't demand that I control my thoughts, just that I control my actions. He makes the distinction in the the book of Matthew. You have heard that it was said of all time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't engage in the act of adultery. But I say unto you that if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart already. That was a new thing to them. That was something higher, that was something more lofty. You've all heard the expression look but don't touch. That was kind of their attitude. Jesus is saying, don't look either. You got to control this, and you got to control this. And I'll help you do that. And that's the key. They couldn't even control the act, the old covenant failed because we can't even control the external actions let alone the thoughts and the intents of our heart. That would have been just too much. But God is saying, I'm giving you a higher law, and I'm also giving you the ability to live up to that. Romans three nineteen and 20 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. I've heard it said this way. You go into the the bathroom in the morning and you look at the mirror. You see a reflection in the mirror. Got a little stubble. I need to shave. I'm dirty. I need a bath. Well, I don't take the mirror off the wall and scrub myself with it. It's not able to clean me. It can show me that I need to be cleaned. But it can't clean me. I need something else. That's what the new covenant does. The old covenant could demonstrate that I needed cleansing. I needed forgiveness of sin. I needed to be purged of my iniquities. But it couldn't do it. It could roll them forward. It could put him on hold, but it couldn't take care of it. It couldn't clean me. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. All it presents to us is the knowledge of sin. I'm guilty, and I need a Savior. That's a good realization to come to And again, mankind is not basically good people who just need a bump in the right direction. That's not who we are. Without God, we are depraved. We are broken. We are utterly without hope. There is no good thing in us. It's said several times in Scripture, Even Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's none good but one. That is God. Only God is good. Nobody else is. (laughs) There are no good people. There are nice people. There are saved people. But there are no good people outside of Jesus Christ. if we understood, if we could get an accurate depiction of who I am without God, the degeneracy that exists in my heart, in my fallen nature, the depravity that I'm capable of, if put in the right circumstance. We look at some people and we we look down on them, we judge them, The only reason we're not there is because we haven't been put in similar circumstances. If we were, we would react similarly. Because we're fallen human beings. We ought not look down on people. They're no better than we are. But if we could get an accurate depiction of of who we are without God, we would understand what a miracle salvation really is. What Jesus really picked us up from. How far He brought us. When He calls us to Himself, He calls us out of the miry clay. We are a long way from Jesus Christ when He calls us. A long way. And it is an absolute miracle that He brings us to Himself. Hebrews 10, 16 and 17 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Amen. And that is the day that we're living in right now. This new covenant is so far superior. All of the previous covenants that, that we've studied, the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, all of these covenants are a progressive realization of the plan of salvation that we experience today. Nowhere else in history has God been able to dwell in us No other time period. That veil was always present. That thick veil was always separating us from a holy and a righteous God. It had to because of our sins. They were rolled away. They were rolled forward a year, but they were still present. They were still there in existence. The debt of it still had to be paid. We still owed God everything. Because of that, we couldn't experience God the way He wanted us to. The way we did in the garden. When we walked with Him in the cool of the day. But today, there is no veil. There is no gulf of sin separating us. At least there doesn't have to be. There doesn't have to be. God paid for that. It's done. It's taken care of. All we have to do is appropriate that. All we have to do is submit to him in obedience. Obedient faith to the plan of salvation. That's all we have to do. And it's taken care of. The debt is paid. And we have a full relationship, a complete relationship with Jesus Christ. All of the resources of heaven are at our disposal. God himself stands ready to, to help and to, to minister, to heal, to save, to deliver, to restore. Whatever we have need of. We do have a few responsibilities. We'll take a look at those as well. Included in the outline, I, I've, I've kind of put a, an outline the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to go through that here today. You can take a look at that. Uh, Just kind of follow through as we go along. There is a lot to this sermon. And uh, we're just probably going to hit most of the highlights. We'll deep dive in a few areas, but there's just too much there to to do a complete study of the whole thing. Not in one setting, anyway. So, amen. That's the plan for the next several weeks. Please look over that outline. Uh, get familiar with it. Get comfortable with it. It'll be easier to follow along as we move forward. Amen. We are in the new covenant. It's the best covenant. I wouldn't want to be alive in any other time period. Now, before I got the Holy Ghost... I was really wanting to live under the Old Covenant because I found it very difficult for me to receive the Holy Ghost. I struggled with it for a long time. Well over a year, I I sought the Holy Ghost. And I tried everything. I read books. I listened to preaching tapes. I, I was praying and fasting and everything I knew to do. I just couldn't figure it out. It ended up it was a problem of obedience. I won't get into the specifics, but I was being disobedient. God had told me to do something and I wasn't doing it. As soon as I did it, the very next service I got the Holy Ghost. Just just as easy as anything you could imagine. <laughs> but uh I'm so glad I'm in this time period. Specifically, the time period we're in today. Not only are we in the New Covenant, but... It's very possible, it's very likely, we're going to see the the second coming of Jesus Christ. That we'll be alive to see that. No other generation will be able to say that. No other generation is going to be able to, to see and to experience the things that you and I will see and experience. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we give glory and honor unto you this morning. Thank you.